This time of year, many people want to give back, but it is hard to know where your donation will do the most good. You can visit GiveWell.org to see a very short list of the top charities that have met GiveWell's exacting standards. This is something I do to make sure that my charitable dollar goes as far as it possibly can. Get more information at GiveWell.org. With Better Mortgage, you can find out how much house you can actually afford on your phone in just three minutes. Get a personalized look at better.com slash E-Z-R-A-K-L-E-I-N. It's not available in all states. See better.com slash terms for more details. NMLS number 330511. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You may remember that months ago I did an episode, one of my favorite episodes with Melanie Joy called The Green Pill. And the green pill is about the idea of carnism. It is about how we treat animals, how and whether we see the ideology behind how we treat animals, how we raise them, how we let them suffer, how we kill them. One of the criticisms I got of that episode, a criticism I thought was in many ways strange, was that people felt it didn't create space for anything in between being a vegan and being heedlessly eating meat. And I thought that was strange because explicitly and repeatedly we did create that space. I mean, Melanie had this point about being an ally and having there be a real spectrum of of positions on this. It's something I say a lot that, you know, I'm almost entirely vegan but imperfect and, you know, a couple of years ago I was a total carnivore in a totally normal way. So, I've wanted to address this again and I will. But in the interim, Dylan Matthews, my colleague and someone who's thinking on these issues has influenced me enormously and who I admire on these issues enormously, brought out a really beautiful episode of his podcast about killing fish, about how to kill fish better. And I wanted to put it here because I think it addresses some of the issues we're talking about. I don't think everybody's going to go vegan tomorrow or vegetarian. For some people, that may not even be a safe or good idea. I think the question here is how to reduce animal suffering. And I can't say that for me, the core question here is killing animals. I think the core question for me is how much they suffer and how humanely they're killed. One of my issues in the food chain right now is that it's almost impossible to get truly humane meat and know it. I've tried to run that diet before. I've tried to say I'm only going to eat at places that or or buy meat that I, I really know is okay. And ultimately, I found that I wasn't able to do that. I wasn't able to check and source supply chains in a way I was comfortable with. And I wasn't then able to hold myself to those promises. Once I was eating some meat, it was easier for me to slip into other places. But other people may be of better discipline than me. But then we have to really take seriously and really bear witness to and be attentive to what is happening in that supply chain. And fish are a great example. Fish are a place where they're really there's almost never any attention to the humane killing of fish. They're killed, as you'll hear, in a quite terrible way. But you could imagine it being better. And so something I think that those of us who care about animal suffering need to do is not just engage and pay attention to questions like veganism or lab-grown meat, which can maybe solve the problems in a more holistic way, but think about middle grounds. Because my sense, and I think polling bears this out, is that the middle ground in this conversation, a place where a lot of people would like to be but cannot be, is they want to eat meat, they want to eat animals, but they want those animals to be raised humanely and they want them to be killed humanely. But that means then we have to pay attention to how they are killed. And in this episode of Future Perfect, Dylan's amazing podcast about how to make the world better, which I cannot recommend highly enough that you subscribe to, 
he does exactly that. Um, and it struck me as such an important episode, and it struck me as something Dylan does all the time, which is truly live his values. So it moved me, and I thought it would move you, and I thought it would be a good step forward in a conversation that we've been beginning to have on this show. So here's Dylan in an episode of Future Perfect, which you should, again, subscribe to, on how to kill fish better. So to the best of my ability, I'm just going to try to recreate what, what might happen sort of on a boat. I'm standing on Andrew Choi's front porch in Hyattsville, Maryland. He's a lawyer by day, but in his spare time, he's an activist on a mission. A mission to teach people how to kill fish properly. But right now, he's showing us the wrong way to kill a fish, which is also the way that a lot of fish are currently killed. So, fair warning, this episode is not for the squeamish. Okay, so, what you're looking at here is what a good portion of commercial fishers look at on a regular basis. And it's a broken cooler with ice still in the bag. The bag says party ice on the side. Sort of the typical method is to take this big party bag, throw it into a cooler, and effectively create just a cool environment. Once the ice is in the cooler, Andrew turns my attention to a tank that's full of yellowish water. It has about seven or eight white perch in it. They're silver, about as long as a TV remote, and they're just lazily swimming around. Take a fish. Andrew throws the fish onto the ice. It flips around and smashes against the white cooler walls. And then we watch it suffocate. Very, very slowly. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect, a podcast that looks at big problems through the lens of effective altruism. I'm Dylan Matthews, and I've been a vegetarian for the last 16 years. So, why am I here, on this porch, letting a fish die a really slow and stressful death? Because this is how a lot of the fish that people eat die. Today on the podcast, we're going to question this method of killing fish in two ways. We'll talk about it from a food production perspective. It turns out, meat from a stressed out, suffocated animal spoils more quickly. It might taste less good too. Andrew will walk us through that piece. He has a fish killing technique that he thinks could make our meat more humane, longer lasting, better tasting, even better smelling. But first, we're going to try and figure out if this fish is suffering. And for that, we'll talk to a reporter who introduced us to Andrew, Kat Ferguson. I am a health and science reporter for a couple of places. I wrote a piece about fish slaughter uh, and the ethics of fish death. For that piece, Kat did a deep dive into the psyche of fish. Her first discovery, fish aren't totally dumb. Fish have pretty complex social structures. You think about fish in a school. What is that? Is it just paper blowing around? No, it's animals that are capable of of recognizing where they're going. It's animals who are capable of migrating enormous distances and knowing exactly where to go. So that just sort of logically, you start to think about it and you start to think, oh, maybe they have something going on in their brains. Now, the term fish covers a ton of different species. And some probably have more going on in their brains than others do. But for fish like tuna, cats really sold on their intelligence. A tuna is an 800-pound, warm-blooded, smart, 
predator. It's like eating a tiger and saying, oh, eating this tiger is better than eating a chicken. Hunting takes an incredible amount of intelligence, even if it's not intelligence that we can identify. You have to respond to something that's happening in front of you and you have to be able to see like this thing in front of me is hiding or this thing in front of me is running in a, in a certain direction in a certain way that I have to be able to, to overcome in order to eat. In experiments, some fish have learned to navigate mazes. They've also learned how to avoid unpleasant things. And that's where the question of pain comes in. Take one set of experiments that was done in the UK. Fish were put in one space with an option to swim into another space. That other space is unpleasant. When they go in there, they get shocks or acid injected under their skin. But they'll also get some kind of reward, like food. They'll avoid places where they had something bad happen to them. And, you know, they'll, they'll stay in the place where they're going to be hungry because they don't want to go back and get acid injected under their skin again. Studies like this one aren't definitive proof that fish feel pain, at least as we understand it. Fish brains are really different from ours, so scientists are still undecided. And just philosophically speaking, it's probably impossible to know for sure what's going on in another creature's brain. But stress is another story. The whole time, they're actually stressed. And stress is something that we can measure. Back out on the makeshift boat that Andrew set up on his porch, we're about eight or nine minutes into our fish's death. Every so often, it'll wiggle a bit and then lie really still, gills moving up and down. We measure stress by cortisol in the bloodstream and, of course, adrenaline in the muscle tissue. The fish experience a great deal of stress when they asphyxiate to death. The fins and tails of the fish are turning red, and one of them has a really bloody face. Some of it's also happening inside its body, so there's also internal hemorrhaging that's happening while it's asphyxiating. Effective altruists want to reduce suffering, not just in humans, but also in animals. So for an effective altruist, this stress, and possibly this pain, might be enough of a reason to push for a change in how we kill fish. But let's say you're okay with fish stress, or you think it's a worthwhile trade-off for food. Cat and Andrew also make the case that all this thrashing and stressing has a serious effect on that food. It's like doing sprints up and down stairs at the gym. First you get hot, and then your legs start to burn. That's lactic acid building up in your leg muscles. So when these fish thrash, it's also flooding their muscle tissue with lactic acid, just just like you or I would feel the burn at the top of the stairs. When you rest after your sprints, your body clears the lactic acid you've built up out of your muscles. But this fish is dying. So all of its lactic acid and its stress chemicals will just stay put. All that acid and all those chemicals send the fish into rigor mortis very, very quickly. So by the time people get home off a boat, their fish are stiff as a board because those fish did what's happening right here. They thrashed to death, they asphyxiated in a dark cooler where they were hot and they were extremely acidic. That's not great for eating. Or for shelf life. It's so nuts to me that they're still going. 
doesn't mean he's alive. It just means he can still, he's still got energy going to those involuntary muscle movements. We watched the fish move for 23 minutes in all. Then Andrew put the lid on the cooler and we went inside. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about an alternative method for how to really properly handle fish to optimize the eating quality. And so this is a process called ikejime. After the break, a better way to kill a fish. Coming up next, to help inspire your holiday gift giving, we have a very special advertiser message from Lego. Check it out. Jake Sadovich is serious about puzzles. For a living, I work at an escape room designing gameplay. And this love of puzzles all started with a Lego set he got as a gift. It was um, an ex- one of the Explorian sets. It was the big uh, space base where the front opened up and the truck came out. Jake loved the way the pieces interlocked, how you could move parts around infinitely. Years later, he found an old ship-in-a-bottle set at a thrift store. And it gave him a crazy idea. I decided I'd go ahead and build it, bottle and all, completely out of Lego. When he finished, he submitted it to Lego Ideas, a platform where fans can showcase builds and vote on ones they think Lego should manufacture. And it was a hit. It was really kind of surreal. It was amazing when it was getting votes very, very quickly. Weeks later, Jake finally heard back from Lego. They had chosen his design. You're just kind of blown away that Lego's now going to build a set based on your creation is really kind of overwhelming. But his favorite thing was how people took his puzzle and made it their own. So they build the ship in the bottle set, but they take the ship out and they'll put like a spaceship or flower garden. Because when you give someone a Lego set, you're not giving them a set of rules to follow. You're giving them the inspiration to create something totally unique. It's just a great feeling to know that that will help to inspire kind of the next generation of Lego builders to go out and create and do their thing. With Lego, every gift has a story. Start your story today at your local Lego store. Thanks for that message from our sponsor, Lego. You can learn more at lego.build slash EKS. That is lego.build slash EKS. Or simply tap the link in the show notes to get started. I'm really excited that this podcast is sponsored by GiveWell because I've been using GiveWell for years and I genuinely admire what they do. GiveWell was founded by dedicated donors who wanted to answer the hard question about where to give their money. And so what they did, which really hadn't been done before, was they began collecting evidence and they began looking at the charities that had the most evidence and how good was that evidence and what could we actually say about that evidence to finally come up with a very short list of charities where you could be sure based on excellent studies done at the highest level of rigor that if you gave them a dollar, that something was really going to happen with that dollar that would make the lives of the world's poorest people better. There are two ways to use GiveWell. You can go to GiveWell.org and just look at their top charities and just give to them if you want. Or you can go and actually go down the rabbit hole yourself. They're very transparent in the way they do their work. They let you follow all their work so you can decide if this is the kind of evidence that you trust. So you can decide if these are the kind of charities you want to support. But if you're looking for a way to give confidently, I really do recommend GiveWell. So all you have to do this year when you're getting ready to give is go to GiveWell.org. Check it out fast and just see who are the charities who have met their standards. Or go in yourself and try to decide if these are the charities that are for you. Either way, it makes giving a whole lot easier. And more importantly, it makes it a whole lot more effective. Givewell.org. That is www.givewell.org. 
I'm always telling you about The Great Courses Plus. They've been a sponsor of the show from the beginning, and their sponsor is really aligned with the mission of the show, learning, learning about whatever you are interested in. Right now, they've got a new course called How Winston Churchill Changed the World. It's an interesting course to listen to right now because we are watching an example of what happens when you have leadership you can't trust, leadership that doesn't make the hard decisions. The Great Courses Plus study of Churchill is about a leader who did make the hard decisions. It looks closely at his role in World War II, at his refusal to make peace with Hitler, even when it seemed to be his only option. It can be so easy to look back now and and think about that time in a patent narrative and Gary Oldman is playing Winston Churchill and they could have only come out one way. That was not how it was. And really trying to put yourself in that moment, put yourself in that uncertainty, there's something very, very challenging about it and very worthwhile about it. But look, the the beauty of The Great Courses Plus is if you're not interested in Churchill, fine. Listen to any of the other thousands thousands of lectures on anything from economics to political science to sociology to cooking to photography. You can learn skills. You can learn ideas. It's a great service. And right now, they've got a great offer for our listeners. You get your first three full months at 50% off. But this is only available for a limited time and only using my URL. You can sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash EZRA. Again, for three full months at 50% off to all of their lectures, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash EZRA. Before Andrew Choi went to law school, he worked on a commercial tuna boat in Honolulu. The unique thing about Honolulu is that it has a large resident Japanese population that have really high standards for their fish. So in order to really not just optimize quality, but optimize the dollar figure, you had to handle those fish properly because we're talking about orders of magnitude and the value of the fish. If that fish is hot, acidic, stiff, you are not going to get top dollar for that fish. So I had to do this weird thing on this boat. I had to take this rusty spike, jam it into the brain of a fish, and then I had to make this cut and like run this wire up its spine and bleed it. I remember thinking to myself, damn, this, I have never done this shit before. I was just a punk ass kid from North Carolina who sat on wide bass boats and luxuriated. But that was a real wake up call for me that there was extreme value in handling a fish properly. And there's value not just in Honolulu. There are a lot of places around the world that will pay a lot of money for a fish that is killed properly. A fish that died fast. Ikejime is a, a manual Japanese process, and it's, it sort of literally means spike. It's focused on the instantaneous brain death. Ikejime. It has four basic steps. Before we walk you through those steps, though, a heads up. We're about to get pretty graphic. So if you're a squeamish person, maybe fast forward a few minutes. Step one, brain death. Andrew goes out with a bucket of water and grabs some more perch from the tank on his porch. He sets us up on his kitchen counter. So like I said, I put down cloth here, a soft landing for him. Andrew reaches in very, very slowly and he lifts a fish out of the bucket. He presses it against the cloth with one hand. And with the other hand, he points out a shiny bean-shaped patch right over the gills. There's a soft spot on top of his, uh, just behind his eye, right here. 
Andrew puts a short spike, like a sharp screwdriver, right over the spot, and he jabs. The fish flares out. Its fins pop up, and its mouth becomes a giant O. Okay. So that fish is dead. So that's step one. Brain death. Step two. Bleed the fish. Less blood means a slower rot. We're going to make a cut here Mm -hmm. in the gill. And we're going to make a cut in the tail here. And we're going to let him bleed out. He drops the fish into the water bucket. Its brain is dead, but its heart is still beating. So the blood pumps out in little red clouds. How do you know when they're done bleeding out? They stop bleeding. When the fish is bled, it's time for step three. We're basically going to run a wire up the fish's spinal cord. That'll keep the spinal cord from firing any more signals at the muscles. It'll quiet the fish completely, so there's no more lactic acid production. It's kind of like threading a needle. If the needle then came to life in your hands. Whoa. The dead fish jumps once, all the nerves firing. Then it's totally still. Now the fish is ready for step four, a cooler of water and ice mixed together. And that's to make sure that this fish that may be hot because it was exercised is quickly chilled, comprehensively, and to its core. That will not happen if you just throw it in a cooler on one side. Okay? And so this is the last stage of this sequence of events. So that's Ikejime. To show us the difference between the two methods of killing, Andrew gave us a side-by-side comparison of the fish, inside and out. He pulled an asphyxiated white perch from the store out of a bag. So let's do this one first. And then he laid out one of the fish we just killed on a cutting board. Oh, wow. That is super noticeable. The store-bought fish is supposed to be really fresh. But the first thing that hit us was the smell. The store-bought ones smell like fish. They smell like like the fish section of a grocery store. Obviously, our Ikijime had just been killed, so this wasn't a totally fair comparison. But superficially, its color was better. Its eye wasn't cloudy. Andrew said it would stay that way, and that it wouldn't smell. All right, so why don't we do this guy first? So we're starting with the the one we killed, the uh, Ikijime one. Andrew opens him up with a sharp knife and shows me the internal organs. Okay, so we're looking at the inside of a fish, which, I don't know, it, it, looks, it looks like the inside of an animal. The innards are whitish. There wasn't really a smell. Okay, now we're cutting open the, the store-bought one. Yikes. Oh. Oh, God. Oh, yuck. If you've ever cleaned out a store-bought fish, you know what we were experiencing. The organs were shriveled and brown. The whole thing looked vaguely infected. And it smelled ripe. This fish will not age. This will rot. rot. Um, As you can already see. At this point, I was still a little skeptical. One of these fish had just been killed. The other was fresh, but still older. Of course it was going to be a little worse off. But then Andrew pulled out another fish, a striped bass, bigger than the perch. Andrew killed this fish himself. He used Ikejime, so it died very quickly. And then he aged it for a full week. 
and this weak old fish did not smell at all. It was still bright and shiny. Andrew filleted this weak old fish for us, and he served it raw. Again, I've been a vegetarian for 16 years now, so I wasn't exactly the most expert taster of meat. But my producer, Bird, is a fairly enthusiastic carnivore, and she had some too. Andrew served the raw slices on a little white plate with some salt, pepper, and lemon. Keep in mind, this fish is a week old. As a person who eats a lot of meat, it doesn't taste like fish. Yeah, it tastes meaty. That has that, like, that feeling when you, like, bite into a, a burger or something. So why does this fish taste like a burger? It's not because striped bass is a magic burger fish. It's because this fish got to age. This is where things get weird. Andrew says the American obsession with fresh fish is just totally wrongheaded. Until we met, I'd been thinking of fish kind of like tomatoes. Best fresh off the vine. But a fish is not a tomato. Obviously. It's meat. Like all meat, that fish needs to age. It needs to actually soften. And it needs to develop in its own flavor intrinsically. If you shot a cow in the head and you ripped off its skin and you tried to bite it, it would be hard as hell. We age beef and pork, and as we age it, it gets better tasting. Fish is very similar, but again, when it goes into rigor too quickly, it will decompose very quickly. And so we don't actually have a very large window of time for that fish to improve in flavor. It's a real um, American misunderstanding about seafood, that we want it now, we want it fresh. If it's now, it's flavorless. So literally, because we kill fish in a violent, drawn-out way, their bodies are full of acid and they rot very fast. And because they rot so fast, we have to eat them fresh. So they taste way, way worse than if we could let them age. A fish that dies a quick death isn't full of stress chemicals. It can sit in a fridge for a week, aging and maturing, and then it develops the glutamates that make it taste like a burger. In Andrew's perfect world, we'd kill way more fish using methods like Ikejime. It doesn't have to be Ikejime exactly, but the quick brain death and the bleeding and the ice, Andrew says that's doable. They already have these these scaled-up large machines to do this, and they're called percussive stunners. And it looks like a small child's playground with a water slide. Um, and it's effectively a chute that, that, that sends fish, hopefully of a uniform size, down. There's a pneumatic hammer that'll pop that fish on the head, render it senseless. And then in more advanced models, a gill cutter will come up and cut its gills to bleed it out. So that's a pretty messed up kind of playground. But Andrew thinks it could be used in fish farms or even attached to fishermen's boats. Kat Ferguson, the journalist who's reporting we drew on for this story, she's a little more skeptical. The reason that fish still die the way they do is because of money and time. Andrew thinks the economic case can be made to fishers. You get more money for better fish. But... Think about, for a second, a commercial fishing boat, right? If they're a trawler, then they're pulling up these enormous nets that are just filled with 
an unbelievable number of fish, and then they just spill them out on the deck. So you'd have to sort of train people, and you wouldn't necessarily get them to care, so you would have to give them economic incentives. you probably have to pay them more, or it would just take more of their time that you would have to pay for. You'd have to buy new equipment in order to change the way that fish tend to die on commercial boats. Kat is hopeful, though, that this technology could be introduced in fish farms. Still, right now, at least in the U.S., it seems like people aren't going to pay the higher prices that would make this really widespread. The ways that people who I've talked to about this story or who have read the story and and then talked to me about it have reacted, they're all shocked. Most people are pretty familiar with the different ways that we kill cows or chickens or pigs, but they're not as informed about fish. For right now, it's not enough in the public consciousness that commercial producers think that they could get a premium on the fish in the same way that grass-fed, organic-fed beef. You can get a pretty steep premium on that. The ethical options in the seafood section of a grocery store are pretty limited. What is ethically caught seafood? It's, oh, we're not going to make them extinct in the wild. Like, congratulations, guys. Ethical seafood has a long way to go. But it might be the most important part of the food chain, as far as animal suffering goes. The average American eats roughly 30 land animals every year, but causes the death of at least 45 fish. Some estimate the number at over 200 fish. I'll be honest, some of those fish are probably so small and have brains that are so primitive that I'm not really as worried about what they're feeling. But tuna and salmon? Kat and Andrew have convinced me that they do feel something. Maybe it's pain, but at least it's stress. And that makes me think I ought to care what happens to them. Obviously, people aren't going to stop eating fish, at least not anytime soon. But the fish that we do eat could die much less painful deaths. And in the process, they could be a better product for you carnivores out there. That's a win for shrill animal rights folks like me. But it's a win for meat eaters, too. Future Perfect is produced by Bird Pinkerton. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska, and we owe a lot of thanks and got a lot of help from Jillian Weinberger. Our engineer is Jarrett Floyd. We got music from Chris Zabriskie, Blue Dot Sessions, and Poddington Bear. Thanks again to Kat Ferguson, whose piece inspired this episode, and you can find it in the description. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out vox.com slash futureperfect. Tell me what you're doing, Dylan. So I'm putting my hands in to try to lift up a fish. And I'm just trying to move with the water. Does he look distressed to you? Okay, I'm just trying to move with the water. All right, he's down. I take this. Oh, crap. Um, my credit. Uh, I, um, I am currently causing him a lot of pain. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Um, okay. He's flapping a lot. Okay. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And here. Now 
everything flared, and I think I killed him. Thank you to Dylan for being, I guess he wasn't here, but for doing this work and for letting us use it on this podcast. Please subscribe to Future Perfect wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you are right now, just take the moment and subscribe to Future Perfect. You will not regret it. Every episode is as good, and it has become one of my absolute favorite must-listens. I'll see you all in a couple of days.